Well, we are in a society that is fairly obsessed with self. And it's hard to get out of that because, frankly, we are too. We see ourselves as the protagonist in the story of our lives. We wake up in the mornings pretty much thinking, how is the day going to affect us? It's hard to, to sidestep that. One, because we have the flesh that's, that is bent on selfishness. And plus, we have the world that feeds it. We are obsessed not only with self, but with self-improvement. And funny, but improvement by means of self. Whether it's exercise, or dieting, or reading more, or quitting smoking, or finding another job, um, we're pretty much convinced that we can make ourselves better if we just give it the old college try. Well, I was fascinated to read not long ago in U.S. News and World Report, of course, most of these efforts occur around January 1st. And mid-year, sometimes is sort of a, a, a good opportunity to look back and go, what was that I committed to back in January? Three out of four Americans make those resolutions. And of course, um, losing weight is like the number one. But amazingly, amazingly, 15 out of 16 people go right back to where they were uh, within one year as far as their weight. Why? Because it was a diet. It wasn't a life change. And that, that's logical. And we can all say, you know what, that's right. They should do better. Mark Twain said it well. He said, the only person who likes change is a wet baby. <laughs> so true. We love the benefits of change. We hate the hard work that change requires. It's so much more than just writing down a resolution or writing down a goal. Though, amazingly, writing it down gives you so much more odds of it succeeding, just the, the physical act of writing it down. But it's more than writing down. It requires being scheduled and being um, committed to. Now take that into our spiritual lives, and we find ourselves often in the same dilemma. We make incredible commitments to God, whether it's from a Sunday message, or whether it's from some conference we went on, or we read our Bible one morning, or everybody else is doing it, we, we say, we're going to pray, you know, every day for an hour. Or I'm going to read my Bible, you know, through, uh, through f for this whole year, I'm going to read my whole Bible through. Whatever the commitment is, or I'm going to stop doing this, or I'm going to start doing that. And those are great things. The challenge is, when we try to diet with God, we just go right back to where we were to begin with. And we get frustrated and sort of disillusioned with this whole sanctification thing because we think, if it's not working, why try? If the Holy Spirit can't get a grip on me and help me actually keep the change in my life, why even try? Just, just go with the flow. Well, the book of Nehemiah gives us actually some insight on not just vowing for change, but how to keep it. So let's look together at Nehemiah chapter 10. Nehemiah 10. We're continuing along a series that we're doing in 
the Bible, where we take just a simple, single message from each book of the 66 books of the Bible, and we've made our way to Nehemiah. You remember last time we, were, we looked at this, we were in Ezra, and Ezra had the personal commitment of personally being in the Word of God. Ezra 7.10 is the, probably the key verse for, for the book of Ezra, and it's the key verse certainly for Ezra's life, where it says that Ezra dedicated himself to the law of the Lord, to studying it, and to applying its principles, and then teaching it throughout Israel. And it was that three-step process that transformed Ezra's life and helped transform the people of Israel and preparing them as they got back into the land. Well, of course, you remember the, the big historical context of Nehemiah at this time. God had brought his people into the land in the time of Joshua. They had a time, unfaithful time of the judges, quasi-faithful time in the kings, terrible time with the, the divided kingdom after the kingdom split. Northern kingdom just absolutely abandoned the Lord. Southern kingdom really struggled to follow God. Only eight of the 20 kings followed God. And ultimately, both the northern and the southern kingdom were taken out of the land that God had given them, the promised land, because they weren't faithful to the Lord. But God said, I will bring you back into the land, because remember, I made that covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Abraham to give him land, to give him descendants, and to give him blessing. So even though the people blew it, God took them out of the land for a time, but after 70 years, he would bring them back. We saw that with Ezra last time around, that with uh, Ezra, he brought them back with Zerubbabel to help rebuild the temple, with Ezra to rebuild the people, and now with Nehemiah to rebuild the wall. I gave you a chart last time, and I think I fumbled on the dates. Some of you were very careful to tell me that <laughs> afterwards. And I, I'm, I apologize. Let me give you the correct dates, if you've still got that chart with you. And if not, then just maybe jot it down on the notes you have before you. But there were three returns back into the land beginning after the 70 years. So they were taken out of the land, 70-year clock starts, then they began to come back into the land. With Zerubbabel, it began in 538 B.C. Then under Ezra, it was 458 B.C., and then with Nehemiah, it's 444 B.C. Now, don't be confused. The span between those returns isn't the 70 years. The 70 years comes before all the returns even begin. There was a 70-year period of exile, and then there was this three-wave return over a, a period of more than 100 years here with Zerubbabel, with Ezra, and Nehemiah. When we think of Nehemiah, we think of rebuilding the wall. In fact, I've still got, um, uh, did, did any of y'all ever do that program of walking through the Bible with uh, Bill, what was his name? Wilkinson. Bill Wilkinson. It was great, very creative, in which they had a, a picture that represented every book of the Bible. I'll never forget Nehemiah because it was like it, you were to pronounce it Nehemiah, and you saw this giant Nehemiah building down to build a wall that was as tall as his knee. So it was Nehemiah, and it gave you this image, oh, Nehemiah rebuilt the wall. So it's silly stuff like that, but it helps you remember. Nehemiah is about rebuilding the wall. But it's more, it was, Nehemiah is about more than just the wall, though that was the primary thing he did, especially in the first half of the book. A city wasn't a city in Old Testament times without a wall. 
If you didn't have a wall, you were just what the Bible calls an unwalled village. And if the enemy came, you scrambled, your whole village scrambled to get inside whatever the nearest walled city was. So for Jerusalem to not have a wall meant basically it wasn't a city. It was a sitting duck for anybody that wanted to come in and to to conquer it or to take it over. Nehemiah heard that the city was in shambles, that the wall was broken down, and the Spirit of God stirred Nehemiah to go and to ask the king that Nehemiah served under. Nehemiah was in the exile at this time. He, was, he had never been to Jerusalem, but he had a passion for the holy city because he knew the Bible and he knew the promises of God. And so when he heard about this, about the wall being broken down, Nehemiah used his position. He was the cupbearer to a godless king, and yet God worked in that godless king's heart to allow Nehemiah to go back and to begin the process of rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. And that's exactly what Nehemiah did. The first half of the book, if you read it, you'll see that in 52 days, they rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem, an incredible feat. Uh, Don Campbell has a great book called uh, Nehemiah, Man in Charge, and he lists 21 actions that Nehemiah did that illustrated great leadership. Listen to, uh, listen to these. I'll just read them off real quickly. This is what Nehemiah did. He established a reasonable and, and attainable goal. He had a sense of mission. He was willing to get involved. He rearranged his priorities in order to accomplish his goal. He patiently waited for God's timing. He showed respect to his superior. He prayed at crucial times. He made his request with tact and graciousness. He was well prepared and thought of his needs in advance. He went through proper channels. He took some time to rest, pray, and plan. He investigated the situation firsthand. He informed others only after he knew the size of the problem. He identified himself as one with the people. He set before them a reasonable and attainable goal. He assured them that God was in the project. He displayed self-confidence in facing obstacles. He displayed God's confidence in facing, I just said that, obstacles. He did not uh, argue with his opponents, and he wasn't discouraged by opposition. He courageously used the authority of his position. Another thing I might mention there is he sacrificed. He gave up his portions that was him as do him as governor in order to be one with those he was working with and serving with. He wasn't this, a leader that was cloistered and was way up here. He was a leader that got involved and, and was building right along with everybody else. Last time we saw in the book of Ezra in chapter uh, in Nehemiah chapter 8, but we read about Ezra, about how Ezra shared the word of God. And then they had a great prayer in Nehemiah chapter 9 that talked about basically the whole history of Israel, how God was faithful and Israel was unfaithful. And now we come to chapter 10, as the people are committing now to changing. They were unfaithful in the past, and now they say, you know what, God, we want to be different than our ancestors. We don't want to be like our parents were. We want to have a different life. We want to walk with you brand new and commit to you uh, one-on-one. And that's exactly what they did. In fact, they wrote down some of these commitments. If you're in chapter 10, look down at verse 28. 
And let's read a few of these. Nehemiah 10, verse 28. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding, are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord and his ordinances and his statutes. And that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day, and we will forego the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. Now, look down at verse 39. They give the details of all the, the tithing that they're going to do, but here's the bottom line. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, the oil, to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers, and the singers. Thus we will not neglect the house of our God, or we will not forsake the house of our God. You could translate it literally that way. So that's a lot, but here's the bottom line of what, what they committed. They committed three things. First of all, they, commit, they committed to no mixed marriages. Now, it wasn't a racial issue. It was a religious issue. The problem wasn't foreign wives or foreign husbands. It was the gods that came along with them. This was Solomon's undoing, as we'll see as the text goes on here in a little bit. The challenge was when they would bring in foreign gods, they would pull people away from the love for the Lord. And so no mixed marriages. We're just going to marry other Jews. Secondly, that they vowed to keep the Sabbath. Now, this isn't something we really do much uh, anymore because the New Testament and the New Covenant doesn't obligate us to do it. The Sabbath day was Saturday, is Saturday, and it was, uh, it was the sign of the Old Covenant. It was the sign of the Old Testament. And as the New, uh, New Covenant or New Testament believers, we are not obligated by that. You may have been raised differently. You may believe differently, and that's fine. Um, the Apostle Paul says in Romans that we, need to, that we needn't be judged by someone else who considers one day more holy than another. Anyway, but they vowed they would keep the Sabbath because at this time that was still part of God's law, and they hadn't done it. In fact, they even mentioned, did you notice where they said that they would observe the Sabbath year? All right, so they committed themselves to no mixed marriages. Second, they committed that they would keep the Sabbath. And finally, they committed that they would contribute financially, particularly to, to the ministry, to support the priests. And we read all the details of that, especially verse 39, of all the things that they would contribute. So, marriages, Sabbath, and tithing. These were the three big things that, that Israel had been unfaithful with in the past, they said, we're, we're going to turn a corner. We're going to walk in God's law. This is what we want to do, and we want to follow him. And they, they put it in writing, and they celebrated their new commitment. Wonderful. Now turn to chapter 13. For 12 years, Nehemiah was the governor of Judah. 
he had a wonderful um, season that his king would let him go away and to serve there in Judah. But, and he did it. For 12 years, he was the governor. But he went back to, uh, to give an account of his time and also basically to check in. And while he was gone, he, he was gone, and then he came back after a couple of years, and he found some startling changes. Chapter 13, look at verse 4. Now, prior to this, Elisheep, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him, where formerly they had put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, the tithes of grain, the wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. Now, these items that we just read there in verse 5 should sound familiar because they're the very things we read at the end of chapter 10 that the people vowed that they would be faithful in. We're going to tithe. And they, gave, they listed the things we're going to be faithful in. Grain offerings, frankincense, grain, wine, all that. If you look back at the end of chapter 10, that's exactly what they promised that they would be faithful doing. Nehemiah comes back and finds out that they haven't done it. They weren't faithful with it. Nehemiah returns and he finds that the great national repentance was short-lived. Once committed to change, they failed to keep the change, and they backslid into the very sins that were their original undoing. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan, or I should say uh, 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 the great minister, wrote in his memoirs. His, uh, he's written a lot of great things, but the memoirs are particularly poignant. He writes, How deceitful is my heart. I take up a strong resolution, but how soon it doth weaken. So that it is, no, it is to no purpose to resolve, except we depend on the grace of God. For if it were not for his mere grace, one might be a very good man one day and a very wicked one the next. Edwards, probably the most brilliant mind our country has ever produced, boils the spiritual life down to the grace of God. He says, I can't think around this. No matter how hard I make a resolution to be faithful to God, it weakens. My, my passion, my goal, my resolution for the spiritual life weakens without God's grace. Without God's grace, we're a good person one day, and the next day we are a wicked person. And honestly, it's moment by moment, isn't it? It's not just day by day. It's moment by moment. So the question is, how can we, through the Spirit of God, cooperate with the positive change that God desires in our lives? Boy, that's the challenge, isn't it? Well, first of all, you have to come to the place where you realize that the grace of God is not only where you begin in living out your faith, but it's the grace of God that's where your faith begins. To realize that, that our God is holy, absolutely perfect. He is described as pure light. And we, on the other hand, are not perfect. Probably nobody in here that would say, I'm a perfect person. I hope. Because we aren't. We are sinful. 
we are sinful to the core. That doesn't mean that we're as bad as we possibly could be, but it means that we are as bad off as we possibly could be because we have nothing to commend us to a God who is holy. A God who is holy has holiness as his standard to come into his presence. And so we, we are born at a huge disadvantage because we are born with a sinful nature that proves itself by sinning. You don't have to teach your kids to sin, do they? They teach you. And so you've got to come to the place that you realize, all of us do, that if I'm to come to have a relationship with God, it's by grace. I can't earn it because I sin. And, and we can live a good life, but what are you going to do with your sin? It takes removing that sin. And that's exactly what Jesus did when he died on the cross. He died on the cross taking the punishment that was ours. He died on the cross taking the punishment that was yours and mine. And then he rose again on the third day to show that that punishment had been fully paid. And if we believe that simple truth, the New Testament tells us, in fact, the principle of the whole Bible tells us that having faith in what God reveals, having faith in Jesus Christ, is all it takes to be forgiven. That's where it begins. But then that same faith, as Edwards so eloquently wrote, is what's necessary for our daily lives. Because just as we can't earn salvation, so we can't earn or work sanctification. It's a cooperation with God. But ultimately, as Edwards said, without the grace of God, we'll be evil one day and good the next. It begins with faith in Christ, and every day it comes to grow out of that faith. Remember when we read back in verse 4, Look at verse 4 of chapter 13. It said, now prior to this. In other words, verse 4 happened first, which is why we read it first. But now let's go back to prior to this and see what happened just prior to this. So look at verse 1 now of chapter 13. On that day they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but they hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Interesting. It tells us that when Nehemiah came back, they read from the book of Moses. And verse 3, when they heard the law, they realize, oh, we're not supposed to marry these foreign women. In other words, with Nehemiah gone, they hadn't been reading their Bibles. Or they'd have known. It took Nehemiah coming back and making this, making this known. One of the main reasons they had backslidden is that they had forgotten the Word of God. Maybe they knew it. Maybe they were familiar with this. Many of them probably were. But the truth is, out of sight, out of mind, even with good godly things. It was reading the Bible that brought home for them the most beneficial way for a believer to live. And the fact is, we can't offset a million lies with a little truth. 
We've got to offset a million lies with a lot of truth. Adolf Hitler once said, if you say something loud enough and long enough, people will begin to believe it. Hearing the lies of the enemy over and over and over and over doesn't make them true, but boy, it makes them convincing. That's why we have to be in the Bible on a regular basis. And uh, we see that the, these foreigners who had somehow had gotten involved with the Jews uh, were there because they hadn't committed themselves to the Word of God. You're familiar with these verses, so I won't ask you to turn there. But just listen and try to hear them as for the first time. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. These magnificent verses from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, remind us that we're never going to keep the change in our lives that we want if we don't continue to meditate on the Word of God, if we don't allow ourselves, our mind, to be renewed. Because, and I emphasize that and, because the connection between those two verses, the connection between offering your body as a living sacrifice, that's living it out, is intimately connected with the renewing of the mind. If we don't have our minds continually renewed and washed on a daily basis by the Word of God, then we're going to believe the lies of the world. We struggle with it enough even being in the Word. Imagine if we're not in the Word, how that's going to deeply affect not just our thinking, but ultimately our actions. How do we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice? It begins with the renewal of the mind. Dale Fincher wrote this. He said, And this is why we have a true discipline to love God with all our minds. It isn't merely a matter of feeling good about God or even wanting to love God. We must grow in our beliefs of God. We must dwell on Him. We must study to understand Him more, His love, His character, His actions. There is a treasure trove of knowledge of God, of knowledge that God wants to share with us. He is the greatest thought our minds can hold. The dedication of our bodies, of our lives, of our actions to God is rooted in the transformation of our thinking. And the only way that can occur is by thinking about what's in the Scripture. There's another reason that they didn't keep the change in their lives, and that's in verse 6. Look at that. During all this time, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king. Nehemiah wasn't there. They had no accountability, or at least they didn't have his. You probably remember back in the 90s the tragic and sort of humorous story of Bering's Bank 
in Britain. Remember that story? They had a chief trader in their office in Singapore who uh, sort of was playing the market with, uh, with Bering's money, betting big on Japan's market until Japan had a terrible earthquake and plunged the market. Uh, but instead of cutting their losses, the Singapore trader doubled his investment, hoping that the market would rebound, and it didn't. It kept going down. Finally, Bearings, uh, Bearings ended up putting $900 million to try to balance um, the, the bad investments, to support the bad investments. But finally, they ran out of money and had to declare bankruptcy. And just sort of standing back when the dust settled, the question was asked, how in the world could one 28-year-old Singapore trader, not traitor, but trader, you know, like someone trading, lose nearly half a billion dollars and ruin a 233-year-old British bank. And the question was, the guy had no accountability. He had no accountability. Our founding fathers had a very healthy respect for abuse of power, which is why they created a government with three distinct branches of government, none of which trusted the other. There was always checks and balances built in, and aren't we glad they're there? Because our government would be in a terrible, terrible shape, even worse, I guess you could say that it is, without any sort of checks and balances. The truth that's also true in ministry, in churches, in nonprofits, and there sometimes it can be worse because a lot of times the, the boards that are there both in churches and in nonprofits, are just rubber stampers there to uh, make it legitimate for tax donations. Ministries aren't exempt from corrupt leadership. And without accountability, true accountability, there is abuse of power, and it does not honor God. Steve Green, the Christian artist, said this. I love this statement. He said, accountability to me is unnatural. My tendency is to only let you know enough about me to give you a good impression. I am a recovering hypocrite, he said. <laughs> Don't you love his honesty? We all are. And the scriptures are overflowing with the implications of our need for accountability. The book of Hebrews tells us this. Encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Boy, that's helpful. In other words, every day it's got to happen because any one of us, the writer says, are culpable to, to a potential failing. The author goes on to say, let's consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. This is the purpose of any kind of accountability. It's not shaming. Accountability, ac accountable relationships are not relationships that shame. You know, to keep somebody accountable, you don't, you don't go up to them and, and ask them questions in order to shame them. The author of the Hebrews defines it as encouragement. Encourage one another. 
and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I've met for the last 15 years with a group, a small group of men in our neighborhood for accountability, prayer, Bible reading. Uh, we call it the hood, this group, this group of guys. Uh, same men, 15 years. And one of them recently said something. He just kind of woke, woke up one Saturday morning and he goes, hey, do you realize that we've all been married to the same women for 15 years? <laughs> and he said that because so many have struggled to be, uh, to be faithful. A believer without accountability is basically a potential scandal waiting to happen. That's why we need accountability. And by accountability, I don't just mean fellowship groups. Those are great, but that has a different purpose. Fellowship. Accountability groups have the purpose of accountability. And it, really, we couldn't call them encouragement groups because nobody ever goes to, a, to an honest accountability group always spotless. And if you do, you're not being honest. The goal is to be involved in a way with another person, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or groups on one, but to have some kind of accountability. When Nehemiah left Jerusalem, there was no accountability because there was no one that held their feet to the fire to continue to do what they committed to do. And so they didn't do it. The great thing about accountability is it urges you to do what you want to do anyway. It pushes you to run that extra mile when you want to stop running to quit the marathon and just to go get a, a, a Snickers on the sidebar and rest or to, or to pull out of the race altogether. Accountability says, no, keep going. Yes, you've stumbled. Let me help you up. Let's keep going together. Accountability is a huge benefit to the spiritual life, and Satan will do everything he can to keep you and me from being unaccountable. If you want to keep the change in your life, the two things that we see in this text are a commitment to being in the Word, and not just being in the Word, like we talked about last time with Ezra, and applying it, but thinking about it, allowing your mind to be renewed, mulling over and thinking through the greatness and the glory and the beauty of God as our pursuit, and the glory of God as our pursuit, and not just self-improvement. Well, look at verse 7 as we see this fleshed out. Nehemiah is back in town. Verse 7, he says, I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. It was very displeasing to me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household's goods out of the room. Then I gave an order, and they cleansed the rooms, and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. Tobiah, you remember, was... Uh, he was related, well, Eliashab was related to Tobiah. Tobiah was one of the enemies, or one of those who opposed Nehemiah earlier in the book, trying to get him to not build the wall. And now the priest has made a room for this guy in the house of God. Talk about how things have slidden in the last couple years. Nehemiah never should have left town if the priest is going to do this. And Nehemiah comes back in and literally cleans house. Sort of what Jesus did in this very same temple, though greatly enlarged by Herod the Great, 
About 450 years later, Jesus came in, found the temple wasn't being used properly, and he cleaned house. God wants a clean temple. And by the way, we are now the temple of God. And the Lord God feels the same about our lives. He wants our lives to be clean before him. And the only way that can happen, as we've said, is, is thinking a regular part of, of the word of God in your life and also accountability that helps you live out what you want to live out. Remember those three areas that they had specifically committed to? Giving, the Sabbath, and no mixed marriages. Look at the next verse, verse 10. I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. See that verse 11 where it says, Why is the house of God forsaken or, or neglected? If you look back at the end of chapter 10, uh, not the end of chapter 10, where was it? Oh, well, somewhere we read about the house of God being neglected, that we promised that that's not going to happen. There it is, the very last sentence of chapter 10. Thus we will not neglect the house of our God. And Nehemiah shows up in chapter 13, verse 11, asking, why is the house of God neglected? You committed not to neglect the house of God. Why is it neglected? Then look at verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys, as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. They promised to obey the Sabbath. Turns out they didn't obey the Sabbath. And now it gets even worse. Look down at verse 23. In those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children... Half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So Nehemiah is walking down the street one day, and he sees this little boy, and he says, Shalom, Boker Tov, which means, hi, good morning, in Hebrew. And the kid goes, hola. <laughs> Nehemiah is like, hola. This kid can't even speak Hebrew because his father had married a foreign wife. Marrying the foreign wife, again, wasn't the problem, but the wife brought along a foreign god. And we know that the word of God wasn't being taught in that home because the word of God was in Hebrew. The kid couldn't even speak Hebrew, much less know any of the scripture. All three things they promised not to neglect were the very things they neglected because they neglected accountability and they neglected being in the Word of God. Years ago, I called my father um, on the telephone. This was back before the days of caller ID and you know all that fancy stuff that we've got now. Called him up and said, hey, Dad, how's it going? He said, hey, son, boy, great to hear from you. I said, well, tell me what you did today. He goes, oh, well, why don't you tell me first? Well, okay, well, uh, you know, we went to the zoo this week, and, you know, we saw this and we saw that. Yesterday we went to the park. Oh, that sounds great. What'd you do? Well, 
Bob, Bob's out uh, in, the, in the garage working on the car, and he went on for about five minutes, and I realized, I've called the wrong number. This isn't my dad. <laughs> True story. But my voice sounded like his son, I guess. And going to the zoo and playing in the park with my daughters and wife evidently sounded like something his son did. And here's the crazy thing. I didn't have the courage to tell him it wasn't me. It wasn't his son. So I just kind of played along with him for a minute until it got to the point where I thought, you know what, this is flat out wrong. So I just said, you know what, Dad, I'm, we need to talk later. And so he goes, hey, it's been great talking with you. You too, Dad. Bye-bye. Whenever he talked with his real son later, it was probably quite an interesting conversation. That was such a weird moment where you realize this man who sounds just like my dad is not my dad. You know, it's really easy to hide who we are on the telephone. I could fake it with a guy that wasn't even my dad. He didn't even know the true voice of his own son. I was able to get by with a five-minute conversation, and he never knew it. You know another place that's real easy to fake it? We're here at church. In fact, the two primary places, there was a, a study done. I don't know why people study these kind of things, but a study done that showed the two places that you are mostly not yourself. As at a used car lot, when you're trying to buy a car, and at church. Boy, what a shame. What a shame. But we want to take it to a different level. We want to be real. Now, there's a proverb that talks about a man of many friends comes to ruin. There's an element that we can't, you know, we can't let everybody know everything that we're struggling with. First of all, nobody wants to know. But also, that would not be healthy. But there needs to be a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That same proverb goes on to say. And that's the individual that can encourage you not only to be in the Bible, but to live the Bible out. This is the individual that has the guts to say, you know what? Something I'm seeing in your life isn't right. And I love you. And I want to tell you, that needs to change. Boy, what a humble person it takes in that moment to say you're right and to keep the change. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the passion and the leadership of Nehemiah, for this godly brother of history, godly brother of the Bible, who had such a love for the holy city that he came to restore its wall as well as its people. Thank you for modeling in this book and showing us through Nehemiah, through his actions, through his words, through his passion, through his leadership, that we can't ever let the message of the Bible in our lives get old or threadbare or to think that because we've heard that message, even in this class, that it's a message that doesn't apply. 
Pray also, Father, that you would keep our ears up and provide for us um, a brother or a sister or a group of people that would go beyond Sunday morning, that would even go beyond the, fel- the fellowship or the koinonia groups, but that would be a friend that would stick closer than a brother, closer than a sister, someone that we could do life together on a level that's deeper than just, hey, how you doing? Someone that would love us enough to tell us the Word of God, to model the Word of God, and arm in arm, iron sharpening iron, we can press on to live the Christian life as we want to. Or as the author of the book of Hebrews says, to encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today. Lord, all we want to do is to be faithful to your calling until you come. There may be some in this, in this room today who are deeply struggling, deeply struggling with life, maybe needing to place their faith in Jesus from an overwhelming sense of guilt of their sin. Give them that courage to place their faith in you today. And give the rest of us also who have already made that commitment the courage to reach out beyond our comfort zones to the lives of others and allow others to reach their hands into our lives that we may be all that you want us to be by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.